passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. It's uh, good to be back with you this morning. Um, last couple weeks have been relatively crazy for me. Um, I'm reminded of something that a friend of mine who's a pastor that I saw a couple weeks ago uh, shared with me once um, when I was first starting in this role. He said, uh, I love preaching and I love not preaching um, because it's nice to have a break every once in a while. And so I'm very thankful for Pastor Stephen uh, sharing the word with us last week um, from 1 Timothy 3. This morning we continue in 1 Timothy 3, uh, picking up in verse 14. And as you turn to that passage, uh, I just want to, to point out what is somewhat of a concerning trend uh, that's taking place here in the United States uh, over the past several decades, and that is that we are seeing an increasing number of Christians uh, who have no form of church association. They proclaim Christ, they even live in a way that honors Christ, and yet they, they don't want anything to do with the organized church, is the way many of them put it. This isn't a, a new phenomenon. Many of you maybe have friends or family members who would fit into this category. Perhaps you would even fit into this category, and you, by God's grace, are just here this morning. And there are a number of different reasons for this. When I was in college, uh, there were a number of people who attended a Bible study that I led on Tuesday nights that didn't go to church, on, to church services on Sunday morning because their Bible study or the Bible study that I led was their church, according to them. There were others who had less noble ambitions, and they said that they liked sleep or they had projects to work on that kept them from attending service on Sunday mornings. Others still have even more noble reasons for not uh, being a part of the organized church. Perhaps they've been hurt in the past by the church. And every single time that they think of a church, they think of pain. They think of the hurdles, both mental and emotional, that they have to get over for them to attend a church service again. And the reality is this trend is only going to continue. As technology increases, we have access to more and more sermons, not just audio, but video posted online that make it very easy for us to just sit at home on a Sunday morning and become more and more isolated. The question that we have to ask is, how do we as a church respond today? That's what this morning's passage is ultimately about. We've been going through 1 Timothy. We've been looking at what it means for us to be a church. And this is the heart of the letter, verses 14 through 16 uh, of chapter 3. The heart of the letter that explains why Paul loves the church. Paul has experienced a lot of hardship from the church, a lot of hurt from the church. And yet, after all that he's experienced in these verses, he explains to us why he loves the church. And ultimately, it's because he can't fathom another way for God to work, another way for God's plan to be accomplished than through the church. Yes, he's experienced bitterness, he's experienced imperfections in the local church, but his love for the church never wavered. He gave his life for the flourishing of the church, and now as he nears the end of his life, 
He writes to Timothy to ensure that the church will flourish after he's gone. For decades and centuries and now even to this day. That the church would flourish. I mentioned this morning that our passage is the heart of First Timothy. It's the reason why Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. And it's here that we see his clearest love for the church. And I think that this passage answers the question that we wrestle with oftentimes today. And that is, does the church still matter? And as you may guess, it answers it with a resounding yes. And explains to us why the church is so crucial. If we were to sum up our passage with just one sentence, I think it would be this. The local church matters today because the local church is the hope of the world. The local church matters today because the local church is the hope of the world. And here's what I mean by that. Now, obviously, we as a church, we confess that Jesus is the hope of the world. The Bible makes it very clear that salvation is found nowhere else but in Jesus' name. Attending a church will not save you. Just as not being able to attend a church because you're bedridden in a nursing home, that won't condemn you either. And yet we also have to recognize that Jesus' plan, God's plan for salvation, is inseparably linked to the local church. Jesus created the church and commissioned the church with the task of sharing the gospel. And as good as parachurch ministries like Campus Crusade for Christ or the Billy Graham Association are, as beautiful as in-home Bible studies are, as, as church camps are, they are not God's primary plan for reaching the world with the gospel. It is the local church that has been entrusted with this mission to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. Even as we looked at a couple weeks ago in 1 Timothy chapter 2, the charge that Paul gives to the church in Ephesus and to us today is that we would bring the gospel to the ends of the the earth. That we would be a people that have committed ourselves to pray for the spread of the gospel here in Spencer and to the ends of the earth. This idea that the local church is the hope of the world is a part of our vision here at Crosswinds. Our vision as a church is the commitment to the multiplication of gospel-centered churches in our region and throughout the world for the good of our world. And we say that because we believe that the local church is the best way to affect lasting change in people's hearts And also to affect lasting change in the communities that we serve. Next week we're going to talk a little bit more about our vision and how that plays out with our future as a church concerning our facilities. But right now be assured the local church is the hope of the world. And because God values the church so highly that he actually refers to it as his bride... And it's our desire here at Crosswinds that we would value the local church in the same way. That we would value it with great worth. That we would honor the local church and lift it high just as God does for his glory. And in our passage this morning, it's only three verses, but I think he communicates this love for the local church, this importance of the church in two ways. First, he describes the ways that the the church matters even today. And second, Paul looks at the confession of the church 
and the conduct of the church and why that matters if we are going to fulfill our mission as a church. As we approach God's word, let's pray once more. Father, it is a great privilege to have your word written in a language that we understand. You have been immeasurably gracious to us in not only just giving us a Bible that is in English, but giving us a number of translations. And Father, even as we confess our gratitude over having the Bible readily available to us, we also confess that we cannot follow you without the power of your Holy Spirit. We need your Holy Spirit to come and to open our hearts, our eyes, and our minds. And so we pray that you would do that this morning. Give us a love for your church, O oh God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, please follow along uh, in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, starting in verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Does the church matter today? Tim Keller is a pastor in Manhattan, and he was asked this question. He was asked, can someone still be a, uh, be a Christian without going to church? And Keller's response was short, but I think very helpful. He said, you can be a Christian, but you can't be an obedient one. That's essentially what Paul is referring to here. He's referring to the importance of the church and why we must be connected to it as Christians. He explains why we as Christians are called to be connected to other Christians in the fellowship of the local church body. If you notice here in verse 15, Paul uses three different metaphors or descriptions of the church. And I think that these three different descriptions give us a very helpful picture of why the church still matters today. Let's look at each of these. First is the household of God. Paul refers to the church as the household of God. This word household is used elsewhere or earlier in 1 Timothy chapter 3 to refer to the families of elders and deacons. And so our first reason why the church matters for us today is this. It matters because the church is God's family. The church is God's family. We have to recognize that salvation is both an intensely personal and an intensely corporate thing. It is intensely personal. This is what Paul refers to in the first, uh, first few verses of, of chapter 1 where he says this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy. Because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying and is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. 
But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Paul is describing his own conversion, what God has done in his life, how the gospel has impacted him. And notice how often he says, I or me. This is an intensely personal thing, this salvation that God has given to Paul. And yet at the same time that it is intensely personal, it is also profoundly corporate. We are saved, but we are never saved in isolation. Romans chapter 8, Paul describes it this way. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. We are saved as individuals, and yet part of that salvation is adoption into God's family. Look around you. Those who are sitting next to you are your brothers and sisters, not in just some token way of referring to to familiarity, but in a very real statement of our identity. We are co-heirs with Christ. We are adopted sons and daughters, fellow brothers and sisters of Jesus because of what he has done for us. Many of you may come from an estranged family. And this idea of of being a part of God's family can just uh, cause you to tense up a little bit because of your own personal experiences with family. Maybe you have a son or daughter who wants nothing to do with you. Maybe you have a brother or sister you haven't seen in years. You've seen the brokenness of families up close. And yet even as you suffer through those broken relationships, there's this voice that whispers that this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not the way it's supposed to be. There's this longing Inside our hearts for things to be made right, for relationships to be restored and made whole. And that yearning highlights what things are actually supposed to be like. It emphasizes the the importance of being connected to the local church body, to actually being a part of the family of God. And surprisingly enough, at the same time, this longing for things to be made right actually shows us why the local church is so important. This longing for families to be whole is not just for physical families to be whole, but for the estranged and isolated in God's family to be a part of his family as well. The family of God matters, and all of us as adopted children are not to be isolated, not to be estranged but to be a part of God's family in full fellowship. And so we have to ask ourselves, if our our church is a family, if the church is a family, are we a family here at Crosswinds? Do we actually live like we are a family? Do we love one another like brothers and sisters? Do we put others first? Do we care for one another? Do we share what we have with one another? Are we a family? 
Ask this not just corporately, but also of yourself. Do you treat others like they are a part of your family? Do you love one another as a part of your family? Ask how you can love others better. Maybe that's through inviting someone over after service for lunch or out for lunch. Maybe it's through joining a life group or a Bible study. Maybe it's for, or through sticking around after a service to get to know others. Maybe it's to head to our prayer wall out in the lobby area to pray for a prayer request of, of one of your brothers and sisters that are here this morning. Ask, how can I be better at loving my brothers and sisters as a part of God's family? So the first description that Paul uses describes the church as the family of God. But the second one describes the church as the church of the living God. Why does the church matter? Well, the church matters because God dwells among the church. In the Old Testament, it was very common for this phrase, the living God, to be used in contrast to the dead idols of the surrounding cultures. As opposed to the dead statues, the lifeless statues of the nations surrounding Israel, Israel's God was alive. But even more than just this contrast, it also described where God lived. Oftentimes, the the phrase or the, the description of God being the living God referred to the fact that God dwelt among Israel. God's presence was with Israel. And in one sense, the exact same thing is, is true today. Yes, God dwells within each and every one of us as individuals. First Corinthians tells us that we are all temples of the Holy Spirit. And yet at the same time, Ephesians chapter 2 declares that this is something, there, there's something special about the local church body. Ephesians chapter 2 says this, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The New Testament makes it clear that even though God dwells within each and every one of us individually, there is something special about God's presence in the local church body. God dwells among the church. This emphasis on God's presence is also a warning for us. If we are prone to write off uh, church services or gathering with fellow believers, if we are prone to downplay the importance of God's bride, we're, we're essentially saying to God... Listen, I understand that you gave us the church. I understand that you meant the church, the the, the gathering of fellow believers. I, I understand that you gave that to me for my good. But God, honestly, your good isn't good enough. We may not actually vocalize those words, but that's what we say when we devalue the importance of the local church. We take God's best plan for our good, for his glory, and for our growth, and we put it on the sidelines. Why does the local church matter? The local church matters because God dwells among the church. A final description that Paul uses here is probably the most interesting, and that is describing the local church as a pillar and a buttress of the truth, or or some of your uh, versions may say a, a pillar and foundation of the truth. 
Why does the local church matter? Local church matters because it both preserves and proclaims the truth. It preserves and proclaims the truth. This word that some, some translations have as buttress and others have as foundation, uh, it really ultimately doesn't matter, which it actually is, because Paul's purpose or what he's trying to get at, the illustration he's using, is the same. What is being described is something that preserves the integrity of the structure. These two functions, this function of preservation and of proclamation, must be wedded together for the church. And they are two of the most important functions of the church. We see this throughout 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1 is all about the preservation of the church, or the, excuse me, of the truth when Paul is addressing the warning against false teaching. Also in 1 Timothy chapter 1, we see the proclamation of truth when Paul refers to his own conversion. In chapter 2, we see the importance of the proclamation of the truth to the ends of the earth. In chapter 3, we see the importance of preserving that truth by having qualified leaders in place. In chapter 4, we again see the importance of the preservation of truth against false teaching, as well as what it means to proclaim faithfully as stewards and servants of God. And it goes on and on through all of the chapters of this book. Paul is emphasizing the importance of proclamation and preservation of the truth. Now to use, or to stress this, uh, this Importance. He uses imagery that would have been very graphic, very visual for the church in Ephesus where Timothy was located. Ephesus was the home of the Temple of Artemis, which is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was the largest temple in the ancient world. It stood over 65 feet tall and had 127 pillars made of pure marble that were six feet thick each. When Paul is saying that the church is a pillar and a buttress of the truth or a pillar and the foundation of the truth, Paul is referencing the magnificence of the temple of Artemis in his mind. The way Ephesus was structured is that the temple of Artemis was on a hill that overlooked the entire city. Everywhere you looked in Ephesus, you could just look up, no matter where you were, and you could see the temple of Artemis. So when Paul refers to the church as a buttress and a foundation of the truth, he's referring to the importance of preserving the integrity of a structure. We we worship in a, a pretty magnificent building here. I mean, if you just look around, in its heyday, this was a very beautiful space, a magnificent piece of architecture. What if it had a faulty foundation? Yeah, don't look over there. <laughs> There'd be a lot bigger issues than just plaster falling if, if the foundation was, was bad. Um, that was funny that all of you actually looked right over there. <laughs> Elephant in the room, right? Now, uh, no, what if this place had a, a faulty foundation? It wouldn't have made it as far as it has. We wouldn't be gathered here for worship. The entire structure would crumble to the ground. And Paul refers to the church in the same way. 
The church has been charged with the preservation of the truth. To not let the, tr- the, the truth crumble to the ground. But to hold on to it tightly and purely. The church is a, is a foundation or a buttress of the truth. But Paul also uses another image here when he's describing the the architecture, so to speak, of the church. He also refers to the church as a pillar. What do pillars do? Yes, they're a part of the structural integrity of a building, but they allow the building to go up. Large pillars allow the building to be built in a magnificent way that can make it be seen just like the temple of Artemis from places Far away. It vaults the structure into the sky. And in the same way, Paul is referring to the church as a group of people that are committed to lifting the truth high or proclaiming that truth among the nations. The church is not just responsible for preserving the truth. The church must also proclaim the truth. We must do both. We must put the truth on display, but we have to preserve the truth before we are able to put it on display. If the church is not doing both, preserving the truth, guarding the importance of the gospel, which we're going to get at here in just a few moments, while also at the same time proclaiming it, if the church isn't doing that, then the church is not doing its job. The church preserves the truth in order to proclaim the truth, which is a part of the church's mission. Why does the church matter? The church matters because it is God's family. The church matters because God dwells among us. And the church matters because it has been tasked by God to preserve and proclaim the truth. But you might be saying, well, what exactly is that truth? And that's what Paul gets to in verse 16 here. In verse 16, he quotes an ancient hymn. Whether Paul wrote this or whether it was just common in the first century and someone else uh, wrote it, uh, we don't fully know. But this is very clearly an early church hymn. And so just imagine in your mind what it was like to sing these words. He's quoting this hymn that is focused on the historicity of the gospel. He's focusing on the fact that the, the gospel, the events of what Jesus did for us, actually took place. Paul is saying that the church is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. And then he says, well, what is the truth? Well, let me explain to you what that is. And I'm going to use a song that you are likely all familiar with. This is, in essence, it's a confession of the gospel. The historical fact that is the gospel. Now, there are, there are a number of ways that, that people have tried to break this up, and, and there's some debate on what is the best way to, to divide this up and look at this poetry. Uh, I, I think that the best way is to look at it as essentially three stanzas with two lines each. Other people say differently. I, I think that this is the best way to look at it. Three stanzas of two lines each, all focusing on the historicity of the gospel. Let's take a look at these. First one is this. The, the first stanza is, He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. Well, what is in view here? Remember, Paul is talking about the truth of the gospel, the fact that the gospel actually took place. When he says that he was manifested in the flesh, he's referring to the incarnation. He's referring to Christmas. He's referring to the fact that Jesus actually came to earth. And by default, or by, by implication, he's actually saying that Jesus is preexistent. He's uncreated. He's describing the gospel here by saying he was manifested in the flesh. And then he says he was vindicated by the spirit. 
That's a, resurrection, or that's a reference to the resurrection. It was in the resurrection that Jesus was vindicated from the claims that he was a false prophet. Paul is describing here two of the most important truths of the gospel, the incarnation and the resurrection. And interestingly enough, 2,000 years later, these are still two of the biggest intellectual hurdles for people coming to faith. People will often doubt whether the incarnation and the resurrection actually happened. They won't doubt the historicity of Jesus, but they will say that he wasn't God incarnate, and they won't say that he was risen from the dead. In fact, every Christmas, every Easter, there are a slew of articles that are written about the absurdity of the cross and resurrection, the absurdity of the incarnation and the manger. And if we're being honest... These two things, the incarnation and the resurrection, they are absurd from a secular viewpoint. If you believe that everything can be explained through natural causes, then the virgin birth is absolutely absurd. If you believe that death is the final end, then of course resurrection is absurd. But if you believe that there is a God who created the cosmos out of nothing, then is it really too hard to believe that God can enter into those cosmos? Is it really too hard to believe that the living God, as Paul just described him, is able to overcome death? In Acts chapter 26, Paul is standing before Herod and is defending his beliefs, and he says this, Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Paul is getting at the biggest hurdle to intellectual belief in the gospel. It isn't the incarnation. It isn't the resurrection. It is the belief in a God himself. And so what Paul is doing here is emphasizing the authenticity of the incarnation, that it actually happened. The authenticity of the resurrection, that it actually happened, because those are key and essential to the gospel. And as a church, we are called to preserve that gospel. That's the first two lines here. Next two lines. Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations. I think what, what Paul is doing here is he first, first stanza, he, he's describing the historicity of the gospel. Next, he's, he's focusing on the response of both heaven and earth to that gospel, to the work that just accomplished. So in other words, if the church is called to preserve and proclaim the truth, this is what is going to happen. This is what is happening. This is what has already happened. Throughout the nations, people are responding. Excuse me. Jesus is Israel's promised Messiah. And as Israel's promised Messiah, he came for the people of Israel. But he didn't just come for the people of Israel. His victory over sin and death was seen by the angels in Revelation. The news of what he had done in the book of Acts is proclaimed throughout the nations. The response to the historical gospel in the first stanza is seen in these next two stanzas. The book of Revelation tells us that people saw, the angels saw Jesus' victory. The book of Acts tells us that the gospel spread to the ends of the earth. This is a result of what Jesus has done. The implications of the incarnation and of the resurrection are not just for Israel, but they are for the entire world. 
Our third and final stanza says this, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This again seems to focus on the response of heaven and earth to the work of Christ. So the first stanza focuses on the historical gospel. The second stanza focuses on the result of that gospel. And this we see is the response to that gospel. If the church is called to preserve and proclaim the truth, this is what's going to happen. Throughout the nations, people are going to respond to the gospel with belief. And that's what we see to this day. The gospel is spreading like wildfire among the developing nations. Even here in the United States, God's word is at work bringing people to faith in churches where they are faithful to the gospel. When Paul says here that believed on in the world, people respond to the gospel with belief. And at the same time that earth responds with belief, the heavens respond with exaltation. The New Testament gives us a little bit of a glimpse of what the risen Christ is like now. Seated at the right hand of the Father in glory. This Jesus who was once humiliated on the cross is now exalted to the right hand of the Father. Glory awaits him. Excuse me, glory awaited him in the ascension. So Paul is quoting this hymn, this famous hymn. This would be like us quoting a modern day hymn today. He quotes this hymn focusing on the historicity of the gospel and reminding us what happens with that gospel. And why our confession as a church, our commitment to this gospel, why it matters. In verse 15, he explains just a little bit of of why this matters. It's found in one phrase here in verse 15. I want to just read this entire passage to us again. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, right here, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Notice what Paul is saying. I'm writing to you so that you know how to live or how to behave, is the the way my translation says it, in the household of God. And then just a few words later, phrases later, he says, great indeed is the mystery of godliness. We'll talk about that here in a second. Paul is telling us that the purpose of writing this letter is so that people will know how to live as a part of God's family. How Christians are to live as a part of God's family. Some translations, I think the the King James uh, translates this, instead of the household of God, they translate it as the house of God. I think that, that misses the point because this isn't how you are supposed to behave in a certain building. If that were the case, my son would be in deep trouble for the amount of apple juice he has spilled here. The focus is not how you behave in a certain building, but instead how do you conduct yourselves as a part of God's family. That's the the purpose of the entire letter of 1 Timothy. How do we live out our identity as God's children? You might say, well, why? Why is that that the, the purpose or the focus of Paul's letter here? To understand that, we go back to 1 Timothy chapter 2, the charge that is given to the church. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, 
This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Paul recognizes that our conduct, the way we live our lives, matters for our mission. Our conduct, the way we live our lives, matters for our mission. Our conduct will either authenticate the gospel message or it will repudiate the gospel message. How you live your life matters for the spread of the gospel. Is it sufficient for the spread of the gospel? No. Many times we hear the the misattributed uh, statement or quote, preach the gospel at all times, Use words if necessary. That, that's not necessarily biblical. It doesn't make sense. That's like feeding the poor at all times and if necessary, use bread. Just, it doesn't work. But the heart of that idea that we are called to live lives that authenticate the gospel message does make sense and is a biblical command. Right conduct is essential for the gospel. Many of us likely have stories of the gospel message being authenticated or being repudiated by the way we live our lives. Several years ago, I was a part of a prison ministry outreach, and uh, through God's grace, a number of the people that were a part of this outreach uh, came to know Christ. And a number of them didn't. This was a, a massive change for these young men as they transitioned from a, a, a non-gospel-centered life to centering their lives on, gospel, on the gospel. And those that didn't become Christians watched them like a hawk. They looked for any and every opportunity to pounce on them if they were to screw up. I don't know about you, but perfection wasn't exactly the first thing that happened after I became a Christian. And so a number of these young men, after they became Christians, they still continued to mess up, continue to sin. They continue to fall back into their previous ways of living. And yet their response to sin was different now that they were Christians. They were quick to ask for forgiveness. They were quick to repent. Paradoxically, God used their sin to show life change in them because they were willing to repent of that sin quickly. Right after they did it. Months went by. And some of these non-Christians began to realize. Hey that this thing was actually real. They were beginning to see the authenticity of the gospel message. Because of the heart transformation. The conduct of these young men. I'd love to tell you that everyone became Christians. After the the conduct of. The transformed conduct of these Christians. That's not the case. But. Even if they didn't, they had a profound respect for the gospel because they had seen it transform lives. There's a very famous article that was written in the London Times years ago by an atheist who says that the most important thing for the the continent of Africa is the gospel. This is an atheist saying that the most important thing for the the continent of Africa is the gospel. Because humanitarian efforts, as good as they are, they don't result in heart change. But these missionaries who come to do humanitarian efforts, they bring heart change. And this man, you know, again, he, he thought that the gospel itself was, was unnecessary. He didn't think that it was important. He didn't believe in it. And yet he saw the importance of 
the gospel. Conduct matters for the church. Now, if you hear me saying that because your conduct matters, I have placed an impossibly heavy burden on your back. That the authenticity of the gospel rests on your shoulders. If you screw up, then the gospel message is tarnished. How on earth can you possibly carry that weight? If that's what you hear me saying, I just have two things to say. First, we should take very seriously our call to godly living. We should take very seriously our call to godly living for the sake of the gospel. For the sake that we represent Christ. Our life will either point to him or detract from him. We should take that very seriously. And yet, at the same time, the weight is not on our shoulders. This is what Paul is getting at in the first words of verse 16, where he says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. What does he mean by that? Is Paul just kind of resigned to the fact that he has no idea what's going on? Is Paul saying, you know what, you're supposed to live godly lives, and and, oh, by the way, if you don't, then you're going to tarnish the message of the gospel, but good luck doing that because I have no idea. It's a mystery. That's not what Paul is saying. Whenever Paul uses the word mystery, it's not something that's unknowable. It's not something that's unsolvable. This isn't resignation. Every single time Paul uses the word mystery, it is something that has not yet been revealed, that has been revealed in Christ. Every single time he uses the word mystery, it is something that was not revealed, that is now revealed in Christ. So Paul isn't saying, good luck, I don't know how to figure this out myself. He's actually saying, you want to know how to live a God-centered life? The key is to look at the gospel. And then he quotes, or he describes the gospel in this hymn. The gospel, our confession, is the key to Christian conduct. It is the key to living godly lives. That's why our confession matters, because our conduct flows out of our confession. It's a part of our mission. Changed lives, honorable lives, are not impossible. They are rooted in the gospel. They are a natural overflow of the gospel. Paul loves the church. He loves the church. And the church matters. The church matters because it is the hope of the world. And the reason it is the hope of the world because it has been entrusted by God with the message of salvation for the entire world. Let us as a church preserve that truth. Proclaim that truth. And live our lives in a way that is honor, honoring that truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for what Jesus has done for us, and thank you for the beauty of the mystery of godliness, that it is not rooted in our own efforts, but it is found in Christ. We ask that as we continue to to seek your face, as we desire to honor you, that you would be with us, and that you would enable us to live holy lives for your sake. It's in Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.